This is a Vantage House production. Hi folks, welcome back. I'm Chaylin. Today is December 2nd, and if it's Friday, then this is the Dove. The stats are staggering, with the world's population having just reached 8 billion, up a billion in just 12 years, 99% of the global population has been losing wealth over the last three years during the global pandemic. In this modern tech era, it's hard to believe, but it's true. The vast wealth divide between the richest of the rich and everyone else is an unfathomable chasm. And in countries where the Gini index, which measures wealth inequality, is high, one seemingly corresponding problem is a lack of financial inclusion. Poor people do have assets, their intellect, their labor, their savings. The problem is that they don't have financial tools to capitalize on these resources. They're trapped in an inefficient cash economy that robs them of opportunities to insure themselves against risk, invest in their productivity, and ultimately to help lift them out of poverty. Financial inclusion, what does that mean? Maybe you know it better by another term, unbanked. Simply, people don't have bank accounts. We all know someone who doesn't use a bank account for their own reasons. Their money is stored under their mattress or in a shoebox somewhere. In fact, in a national survey by the FDIC, the unbanked respondents were asked why they didn't have an account. 52% stated that they didn't have enough money to keep in an account. And 30% responded that they just don't trust banks. So, send this episode to your second cousin or whoever is stashing their cash in a Ziploc in their toilet tank. America is well known for its eccentricities, but around the world there is an even larger problem and lack of access to banking. Gender, literacy, geography, poverty, disability, and more can all be impediments to opening a bank account. 1.6 billion people around the world are unbanked. 38% of Central and South America are unbanked. In Colombia specifically, 54% of the population is unbanked. And in Morocco, a whopping 70% of the population does not have a bank account. But banking can be a powerful tool for poverty alleviation. According to studies, proper financial inclusion that is safe, accessible, and affordable is cheaper than predatory options like check cashing and loan sharks. Financial inclusion opens doors for loans and credit, for renting or buying property, investment and starting a business. Banking gives people a place to save. Having access to an online banking service saves time. And using a card or deposit feature online mitigates cash-based crimes. An unbanked person in the U.S. can spend two to $3,000 per year in, quote, alternative banking fees like payday loans and check cashing services. Payday lenders who prey on impoverished and unbanked consumers offer fast loans with a median interest rate of 300%. My guest today is a Dominican native where 45% of people don't have their own bank account. Hector Torero saw this problem and said, let's do something about it. He's not the only one, of course. The mobile money industry is booming with $1 trillion processed annually by the industry and a 31% growth rate year over year. Mobile money options have been a godsend to the unbanked and now are used by over 1.3 billion people. Hector's company Moneda is providing a service that is one part banking, one part financial literacy class for the unbanked and underbanked in DR and across Latin America. This service makes banking accessible, affordable, and safe. Let's dive in. Hello, hello. How's it going? I'm doing pretty all right. It is Monday, sunny, clear, and pretty good day. It's Thanksgiving's week. Yeah. We were just talking before um, we got started about how your week is. You have like off and it's really nice. And and me over here, I'm like struggling on this Monday, but <laughs> but it's okay. We're going to make it through. That's right. That's right. I think um, we lucky enough that we had the whole week off. I know most people 
only have Thursday and Friday, and there's a very unique set of people that don't even get Friday off. Um, I, feel, I do feel bad for those that don't even get Thursday. So definitely a little bit privileged there. All right, I want to like jump right into this, and uh, we're going to be focusing on the unbanked and income inequality and all of that. I would say good stuff, but it's not good stuff. It's really bad stuff. <laughs> it's it's really really bad to be unbanked and not connected to the modern economy. What are some of the social and economic challenges with not having a bank account? I think this idea of underbanked uh, is very underlooked, especially in the mainstream American market, right? Um, I think we show up to a bank, and um, we typically have the banks in America begging us to get our money, even if it's just our own money for a savings or a checkings account. Um, but in other places or emerging markets like Latin America, Africa, or even India, these communities do face uh, a given set of challenges that prevent them from getting there. Um, and it's not as easy to get access to one. But the biggest challenge with not having access to a bank account is how do you fulfill basic necessities, right? Um, right. We all know that some of those basic necessities are your electric bill, your sewage, or your rent, right? Or just grabbing food. And a lot of us can actually do that from the comfort of our home. But the reality is that without access to banking, um, there is an operating cost to fulfilling this basic necessity. And that is the cost to cash on hand transaction. So imagine you not having access to your beautiful banking app or your um, the ability to use your credit card, debit card to pay for your electric bill online. You will literally physically will have to go into these offices um, to pay for these bills at their headquarters or wherever their their their, their next brick and mortar is. Um, sometimes that, that might be five minutes away, but but in other places that might be an hour. And if you add on traffic on top of that, that can easily turn into two hours. Now imagine the impact of that plus working hourly. Um, that means you have to find some time and imagine Thanksgiving week, right? You, most of us don't even get it off and putting to put that necessity to happen to go out there and pay for transportation, get stuck in traffic just to pay for that electric bill. And that's just one of the very few things that happens when banking is not accessible to individuals. Yeah, you know what, while you were speaking, it kind of reminded me of like a situation, you know, when sometimes like you're traveling abroad and your card stops working and you're just like, what do I do now? And while this scenario probably sounds very like first world problems, imagine that's like your everyday life where you're just like, I don't have a card to pay for this. I only have cash. That sucks. You're right. And, you know, I was just having, I remember last month I was, um, we were pitching to one of the banks locally uh, in Latin America. And um, we were trying to establish what the big problem is. And I remember me saying, you know, out of the total households in Latin America, specifically the Dominican Republic, um, 15% of the total income is being spent solely in transportation. Wait, 50%? 15. 15, okay, okay. I mean, that's and, still um, Right, and I remember they're, they're being extremely surprised, and they fairly understand this idea of being underbanked, uh, but they, they see it as an impediment to, to do e-commerce, right? They think, okay, not having a bank account, is important, right? Uh, it's a trouble because these people cannot buy online. They, they can't do the whole Amazon. They can't do the whole Uber or DoorDash. Um, but one thing that they completely underlooked was like, hey, yeah, but do you know that this contributes towards the big 15% allocated solely to, to transportation? And they were like, well, what do you mean? Well, I said, well, not only do they have to have the physical burden of going to these places, but a lot of these people don't have cars. And they had to pay for additional transportation costs because they have to go and pay for these bills. Right. When you think about the marginalized community or the community within below the poverty line into extreme poverty, what would happen if you had the opportunity to reallocate 15% of your total income into a savings account? Mm, yeah. 
because they wouldn't have to travel to, you know, electric company or to whatever random utility company. They could just do it from the comfort of their home and, and, and you know, just debit it out. And it's also, even if, uh, were, they, were these bankers surprised that these folks didn't have cars? <laughs> So, but like, how do you pay for your car? <laughs> you need a bank account when you, when you just like debit your your monthly payment from your bank account. <laughs> no one's rolling in with like you know thousands in cash. And that's what happens when when you don't have representation at the table, right? I right, think that right. that's the big important piece, right? A lot of these banks now they do acknowledge that there is a problem, but um, now when they think about this problem, they see it from a commerce perspective and they only say well these people can consume online well consumption is not the only thing that needs to be done online mm. um, being part of this uh, retail space is not the only thing it's not just about going to amazon but the reality is that there are other things that need to be fulfilled that can only be done nowadays be- through digital payment because of covid or mm. digital transactions right mm. Also, it's not only about just paying, but it's also about earning, right? A lot of these people sometimes have to go pick up their paychecks on their day off. And that's not fair to them, right? They have to go out there to these offices to pick up their checks because they can get them through direct deposit. And just like they had to go pick up that check, they also have to go to a bank to be able to cash out that check. And that's another transportation cost. And that's more time. And on top of the time and the operational cost that it, gets to, that it costs to get there, they also have to give the bank a portion of that earning because, right. because it's just of the service, right? Um, and so they're paying for a service that honestly does not actually make their lifestyle better. And so a lot of this issue is like you think of when you go to these banks and say, hey, you're causing this problem by creating these gates into the community. And now that you're aware of it, you're trying to go after the segment, but you can really solve the problem right because you don't represent part of the community that faces these issues. Kind of the underlying assumption, if they're bad businesses, is that the people who use them are not very smart, right? And I knew that wasn't true. I knew from my other work that when you're low income or working poor, you're really good at managing your money because you don't have very much of it. So it didn't make sense to me that people would willingly pay more for something that they could get for less. What What's the main thing that's keeping folks from opening or maintaining a bank account? Is it like an education thing? Is it, you know, just what 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 is this obstacle? It's a good question. I think that it varies in different markets, right? Um, I think I remember re- reading a research article on M-Pesa. So M-Pesa is the more money uh, company in Africa who is solving this problem and, and they're being very good about it. Um, for example, in Kenya, um, I remember reading that uh, like 25%, so roughly about 25% of the population in Kenya only have bank accounts, right? That, that's the only portion of the population that have bank account banking service. But after MPESA launch and, and 10 years later, now we're seeing that 75% of the population have mobile money. Right. So a lot more people are using this idea of mobile money uh, than actually bank accounts. And oh, wow. in Kenya, the issue with access to banking is the rural areas, right? These villagers and not being close to, to banking offices that, that, that didn't have reached to them. But a lot of people have been trying to scale this model of M-Pesa and they have failed to, to, to replicate this even across other countries in Africa, let alone in places like Latin America. And that's because I think the problem is slightly different. In Latin America, what we have been able to see is that um, people don't have access to bank account, not because they don't have access to the physical banks, but rather because the banks have strict, strict regulations that prevent them from entering the banking services industry. So you have things like, oh, in order for you to have a bank account with us, you need to have an official formal letter of employment. Okay. But then you exist in an economy where most of the workers are gig workers. Oh, right. Okay. I am the lady that cleans somebody's house or I work at a supermarket or I literally... Or you deliver like, you know, Uber or Uber Eats or whatever. Right. And what, what is the letter, the official letter of employment mm. there? Right? 
Um, and so a lot of these people don't have that formal employment and therefore don't have access to a bank account. Some of these people, um, they might also be able to work and not know how to read or write, right? So being able to go up to a bank and say, hey, um, well, I don't have a letter. Um, I can't even produce a letter, um, but I do have my hard earned money. And um, it is not in the order of magnitude of a thousand dollars. It might be just twenty dollars. Yeah. Right? But banking will say, "Well, we won't allow you to deposit that money into a bank account because of the fear of that money coming from money laundering." Mm. And that is honestly the big excuse, right? Like the big topic when you go to have this conversation at these banks is we have all these very strict regulations to protect us from laundering money our banks but when you look at it from a micro level like this is still happening yeah and it happened quite a lot and these regulations is not preventing these things from happening but it is preventing this individual from banking and laundering just 20 bucks yeah yeah (laughs) just a big question here right Right. um so I, i think in places like latin america versus africa a lot of it is um, discriminatory practices uh, behind the regulations in banking. How does gender come into play? Are women more affected? Are men more affected? What does that look like? I think any kind of personal identifier that does not make you a lighter man, working man, would prevent you from just... Okay. Right. I think that there is this patriarchy still established uh, within Latin America, especially the Dominican Republic, where um, the services and communities are still catered towards the rich, white looking men. And uh, for the most part, you know, we're still dealing with income inequality across genders and just employment. Right. And, you know, we're still seeing women as housekeepers and men as breadwinners. And um, that does create a disproportional feel when it comes to employment in the country. And if women don't have the same job as men, then if the banking system heavily depends on somebody's employment, then you obviously know that um, women are also less banked than, than men in that sense. But also women are not producing money. And again, banks want you to justify your source of income. And so for the most part, you have, there, it, I hate this word, but there's this big cultural word going around called chapeadoras. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the nope, chapeadoras. Fill us in. But they're the gold diggers, right? And it, is okay. become a, <laughs> it has become a cultural I've phenomenon. I've heard of that one. <laughs> um, you know, the reality is that um, this is something that people are tossing around and it has been heavily accepted within the community where it's like, yeah, Women's are chapeadoras in the Dominican Republic. And it's a terrible connotation because there's a lot of hardworking women that want to earn their own money and they are earning their own money, right? But the sentiment is that Dominican women are chapeadoras and that's not necessarily true. Um, But also women growing up in some of these cultural spaces is like, the mom is always like, hey, you just got to make sure that you do your hair, that you do your nails, that you look good so you can find a man that's going to support you. And so... A lot of these traditions are also adding and contributing towards this discrimination yeah. that's happening with getting people access to banking. And so I think that there has to be a cultural shift on how we teach and grow women in the Dominican Republic and how we empower women in the Dominican Republic. Um, because from both sides, I think that men are taking advantage of the fact that this is true and this is the case. And again, to keep the wealthy class wealthy, let's just bank those that have formal employment because also those are the people we can actually make money from. Everybody yeah. else is worth banking. I think another um, kind of like intersection I want to talk about is accessibility and in- inclusion. Um, so we're talking about um, you know, the unbanked and things, but how does this impact folks who are disabled? 
That's a good question, you know, and I think so a lot of my work what that I do in the technology sector currently right now, as you know, I, I do work for Apple and in there I specialize in accessibility. So I write accessibility code. And one of the things that we know generally is that one in seven people experience one form of disability. And so there's three types of uh, disability. The first one is permanent disability, right? Um, that is somebody okay. who has a limp or um, is blind. Yeah. There is no fallback to uh, what we nor- think of a normal, normal state, right? Which is not true. And then we have also something called temporary disability. And that is, you know, you got an ear infection and you lost hearing for just a week. And, um, but after you treat your infection, your hearing goes back to 100%. And then lastly, we have circumstantial disability. And that is the case in which, you know, you're in the subway and um, it's just extremely loud outside because the subway tracks are so loud. And you just want to watch some Netflix. And the reality is that you want to pop in that caption because having caption just helps you hear it better, right? And so that is a form of um, circumstantial disability. So we often say that the accessibility group is the one minority group that you can actually join and that you're very much likely to join. Um, and so when we think about technology, that, okay, that actually sounds a little scary. <laughs> it is, yeah. it is. And I think that there's power to acknowledging that. And, and, and the reason why there's power to acknowledging that is because um, when we think about accessibility, people often think about disability. And uh, that shouldn't necessarily be the case. I think accessibility is the intent to produce a product for a large range of people of their abilities. And I think that part of diversity, right? Part of diversity and inclusion is that there is all forms of diversity. There's the ethnic diversity, there is neurodiversity, but there's also diversity of abilities. And, And we just, we all just happen to interact with the world around us very differently. And that is what accessibility should be about, right? And the fact that we all know that we can join these groups in different stages of this group, whether in, on, the, on the permanent side, on the temporary or the circumstantial side. So when we think about accessibility, is the goal to how do we make a product or a service available to everybody? Right. Because generally, when we think about solving these very core cases, the product result into being better for everybody, period. And so now when we bring that into places like emerging markets where um, we know that personal identifiers such as gender or even sexuality or even economical class or even just abilities, every one of these factors will get you into having access to these products and services. And so while in America, when, while globally is one in seven, and in America, this will be a much more smaller segment of market that is impacted by the intersectionality of accessibility and discriminatory practices, right? That affects identity. In places like Latin America, it's the majority of users, right? Um, you have the majority of users facing these um, discriminatory challenges based on identity, but then you overlap it with this one in 7% and you start realizing that out of whatever segment you have left that can in fact hop into your services, you're not bringing this layer of disability and you are like half gone, right? So you end up so, being with a very small group of people. There's like, a, there's like a, there could be an economic push to increase accessibility. It can grow your, your baseline of potential customers and clients. There is. Yeah, and, and, and you cannot. And, but 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 in order for you to acknowledge that, two things need to happen, right? You need to be, be very good about your unit economics, right? Making sure yeah. that oh, every person does count. Yeah, that if you, for example, um, today, right, a lot of individuals like why the banks things like why would I give access to a bank account to this person that's only go, going to put twenty bucks in there? Like, how do I make money out of a person that only has twenty bucks in there? As a bank. 
I have absolutely no interest into changing my regulation to allow this person to store 20 bucks because I don't make money out of 20 bucks. Right. Right. And so, but when you detach banking services and technology, you realize that empowering somebody to use technology through the internet to purchase or buy necessities could have some profitability, right? Because of where they go to consume and what they're consuming, right? And that's 20 bucks that they would have access to a much larger market, like mm. a marketplace. Think about Facebook marketplace or think about Instagram marketplace and how these marketplaces incentivize competition. And competition in a marketplace only benefits the consumer, right? Because it increases the purchasing power of consumers and incentivize consumption. But these banks don't see this because it's not part of the unit economics. And then the other part is that they also don't understand what a disability is. Like I remember, or even equity. I, I remember going, we, we were um, we were speaking at this conference. It was a, a tech, con- one of the biggest tech conferences in the country. And um, I started the conversation with like, do we knew what accessibility was? And, and, and very little people actually mm. raised and and then I asked them, okay, we got some work there. And then the next question was, do you know what equity is? And almost no one raised their hand. Mm. And so before we can even understand the economical power of including these people or the opportunity loss of excluding them, we first of all need to understand who they are and, and how they're defined and what these terms mean to the people and us. Because I don't think these definitions quite exist in, in these spaces. I think we're just getting to them in America, let alone how that's trickling down to places like Latin America. Yeah. I was going to ask, what are, I guess, some of the hotspots around the globe where, where they have the greatest percentages of their populations unbanked? Is it, I mean, is Latin America leading the way in that? You know, where are some, what are some of the top places? I think the big markets in, in this space are usually um, Africa. Obviously, I think that's one okay. of the biggest one. Um, then is also India. India is mm. a big one as well. Um, and I think you have Asia. Um, these markets, uh, they're, they're definitely larger than what we're seeing in Latin America. Um, but also Africa started solving this problem 10 years ago. Right. So that they're they're definitely further ahead into solving this problem. Um, but the problem still exists. Right. Um, I think that Asia, specifically China, um, has done a relatively good job also at solving this problem. So we have in, in Africa, we have MPESA and Wave. Wave is even evaluated right now at over a billion dollars mm. um, based on the work that they're doing with this segment of the underbanked. Um, and then in China, we you have, have things like uh, WeChat and WeChat. Yeah. They're fundamentally solving the same problem, uh-huh. right? Where you go anywhere in China, and I spend roughly about almost five years out there. Um, mm. And I remember it is the only way to pay. <laughs> I, I will almost argue that cash is almost obsolete in China. Yeah, no, I was saying it's, it's pretty similar in the UK where everything is pretty much contactless. Um, it's, it's, it's wild to think that. It is, and in China, the way China did it was very unique, right? Because in America, you know, we we do have Venmo and we have Cash App, and, and these are based on a lot of these QR codes. But um, yeah. you 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 could tell that you know there's a big push for like Apple Pay and um, Android Pay and Samsung Pay, right? And none of these are very dependent on hardware and NFC chips and all that good stuff. Mm. China, they they really dominated this space of like these QR codes because in order for you to, to do contactless payment with QR code, you just need a camera and relatively low resolution screens mm-hmm. and low budget phones. Um and just another and that's it, right? And so they they managed to to scale contactless payment across the entire country almost effortlessly. To the point where you go to the smallest like mom and pop shop, noodle shop, or anything like in the yeah. little corner, and that person will pop up their WeChat and, and take some payment from you, contactless. Mm. Right. And so I think that there's value and power to that. And I think China has always been known for being this end 
to infinity kind of market um, where they're not necessarily focused on like zero to one innovation, but rather how do we take these proven technology that exists somewhere around the world and how do we scale that right, to, yeah. our, to our entire country in a way that is effective and efficiently. Um, and so it's always, it's always interesting to, to see China and their technological advances because um, again, they're focused on like, how do we take this technology and actually make it accessible? And you don't even think China to be the country to actually do that, but they do. And I think that it is worth admiring, like, and looking into it and seeing how do they scale this? How do they scale everything to make sure that everybody in their country is included within their services? Yeah. What do you think of people who use cash to pay for things? That's rare and weird, he says. Only the elderly and people who don't know how to use a phone pay cash. You can give a homeless person money with your phone. You would never see that in the U.S. All you have to do is scan that code to transfer money. And it really is ubiquitous uh, in China, from the largest cities, the fanciest hotels, to the most humble streetside shacks will all use QR codes. I, I want to hop over a little bit to, um, I guess, crypto and talk about kind of like what is the difference between, um, you know, alternative banking or apps and online banking and bringing in crypto as perhaps a solution to it. Crypto is not having a, a great, I guess, two weeks, but <laughs> maybe, you know, there's some alignment between these. Yeah, that's a good question. And I will, I will leave with saying that I'm not your biggest crypto person. I'm not an expert in the crypto space. I actually not in favor of crypto. Um, and so I, you, I do have- You my, were actually <laughs> cheering when FTX went down. <laughs> I know, I know. Listen, I've been very vocal. If you know me, I've been very vocal about this crypto space and how I think it just will never work. Um, and I think that um, I do want to decouple the difference between blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. Now, there is this other alternative to Bitcoin, right? Which is no. state. And then there's a lot of people and economists looking into stablecoin as a way to represent actual physical currency. Now, the problem with uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, particularly things like Bitcoin and, and some of the other currencies that are trying to emulate uh, currencies, um, the problem I see with them is that they're decentralized, right? The whole idea is like, oh, you have this decentralized system where no one person owns it. Right. Well, I think that is the problem. I think the one thing that we learn from international relation is that governments use their currency as a form of leveraging power over other country. Like, if we all had crypto, if we all used Bitcoin as currency, right, and mm -hmm. went through the war in Ukraine, then we would have never had power to sanction Russia and what they're doing. Oh, wow, yeah. Right. That's, that's really and, good. And good, so yeah. if we were to surrender the power to our literally dollar and the SWIFT system, which is the uh, universal or at least more universally uh, supported system for uh, supporting exchanges between currencies, like um, then we would never be able to 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 say, hey, if you're doing this, then we can sanction you in this space, right? And so a lot of government use their own currency to influence other countries politically, right? Um, I mean, that's what trade is about, right? Exchange of goods. And so if you have a currency that is valued more than other, um, then I trade, you know, I buy, all, buy whatever resource you have in exchange for my resources. And knowing well that whenever you get this resource from me, you can further tra trade it down the pipeline. Um, but then the other part is, so then the argument against it is like, well, if Russia would have adopted crypto, then they didn't wouldn't have they wouldn't have to deal with the sanctions from other countries because crypto is decentralized, right? Right. Well, right now the. Russia doesn't look too well for the rest of the country. And the only thing that Russia kind of has power over is their own people. And if Russia was to adapt crypto like Bitcoin, then now they're surrendering not only their power globally, but now they just surrender their power within their own country. Because <laughs> now the government no longer has power among its own people, right? Because one way that the government has power over us 
is through the local economy, right? How the government regulates currency. You know, you see, obviously, the other side of America where we're pushing money into our um, currency because of COVID. But, but again, currency globally, both on a global level and on a local level, domestic and international, um, we know that it's been used to leverage and, con- and provide some kind of regu- regulatory practices towards our own people and influence globally. Now, once we use crypto and decentralize that, we kind of lose all that. And so I think that a lot of countries are going to want to stay away from using crypto because of that. Um, and I think that even if you think about crypto as a form to solve this problem, um, you still need to be able to say, how do, what is the gatekeeping, right? Like, how did people get to crypto? And this is something that we ourselves uh, and the project we're working on with Moneda are looking into solving, right? Where a lot of it is so heavily focused on the instance of paying, but not so much in the instance of actually getting the cash to digital. At the end of the day, I don't think the problem is these people not be able to know how to pay online. I think is that they don't have the money mm. online to be able to pay. Mm. So we should focus more on getting that money from cash to digital than trying to provide a digital infrastructure. That's yeah. how it's realized. I have a weird question. Is there anyone or is, is there like a, a population that actually has money and they're still unbanked? Or is it really kind of more of a poverty issue? That's a good question. Yeah. Is there like a millionaire and they're just like, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> that's, that's a good question. That, that's, that's I like very... staying on the margins of, of economics. I don't really want to go to a bank. That's interesting. I, I don't think I know the answer to that. But what I will say, <laughs> one of the things... I told you it's a weird question. <laughs> it's a weird question. But, but I will argue is that one of the... Based on all the books I've read and all the case studies I read, I think that one of the big factors of success is the ability to leverage credit. And that's the part we don't talk about, right? Mm. We think about like, why do poor people stay poor? Well, that's because they don't have the ability to leverage somebody else's money. And so okay, the thing yeah. that we don't, we don't, because we, we also often forget is that, sure, the underbanked is an issue because I cannot put my own money in a bank account to be able to access it online. There are other issues with that. The first is safety, right? Like, in these emerging markets, we know that poverty creates a lot of um, crime. And so one of the things that's keeping people poor is literally people being robbed of their own money. Yeah. And grow financially if you can keep the money in your pocket, right? And so, again, it goes to show, again, for us, we're, you know, we think of a lot of people define themselves in this space as a digital payment wallet. We're not a digital payment wallet and we don't inspire to be. We are a digital transaction wallet because what we do is we're focused far more than just the payment instance. We focus on like how to keep somebody's money secure and safe, right? It's like we also want to prevent that nobody robs you out of the cash money in your pocket, right? And we, we are trying to build technology around how to protect somebody else's money, even if the attempt is to go into their phone and force them into logging in and send them to their own other wallet, right? And so we're building security and safety nets behind that because we understand that what's keeping people poor is also they're constantly being robbed out of the $10 that they just earned. Right. Right. I feel like this is a really good part to probably kind of pivot to Moneda and plug it. Let's plug it. <laughs> Let's plug it. Plug yeah, it. do a shameless plug. Let's go. You know, I think for us, we are a digital transaction wallet for the underbanked. And what we do is, honestly, we, we really focus on reducing the friction with engaging this individual in any kind of business. We have two core values, and that is equity focus and inclusive design. And what really drives us as a group is to ensure that uh, when we built this platform and the research that we're doing around it is, let's forget about the payment piece, Mm. right? Let's forget about the part that makes money, right? We don't want to think about how do we make money from this people? 
can we rethink this model and say, can we actually build a wallet that is focused on actually doing the opposite, which is growing people financially? Mm. And so our actual mission statement is to build prosperity tools for financial growth. And so what we want to do, um, which is quite different from most people in the market, is create a set of tools that allow individuals to grow themselves financially. So I guess it's one part banking tool, one part financial literacy. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, And that's where the equity component comes in. We do acknowledge that it is our responsibility to ensure that the technology provides an opportunity where the user can learn about their own finances and improve upon those. And so we often say, hey, you know, it is their responsibility to make sure that they manage their money. Well, when you are gated from an educational system, when you're gated from having access to to, um, any financial literacy, how do you expect these individuals to grow this domain knowledge. Yeah. And so we we often think internally to ourselves that this is our responsibility to bring on board. And so we always say, okay, let's make it easy for people to get their money from cash to digital. Um, but then at the same time, let's protect that money that once it is there, even if they're being held at gunpoint to say, hey, I know you have your money in this wallet. Um, send it to my account. Even when in that moment, in that instance happening, we can still protect the user from being robbed. So uh, nobody else is actually doing that in the market. If it's like, all right, person is being held at gunpoint and the robber is saying, send me your balance now. Um, do you guys let the user send like a phantom? Yes, exactly. Okay. So <laughs> what we do, right? That's a good, good, call, good catch on that. Yeah. And so what, what we do is that. So you have you have your wallet and you have a pin. Um, so a user can have access. The biggest the, the biggest issue with um, mobile money is that everything is pretty much instance. And so yeah. um, that's what I'm thinking. Because if it's a phantom payment and the robber's like, it never got here. Right. Right. <laughs> And so what happens is that I guess the benefit to banking is that if somebody charges you in your credit card, right, the balance don't usually clear right away. So you can mm. always be like, hey, mitigate, call your bank, somebody try to charge my credit card, mm. whatever, and a transaction. So there is some wiggle room for banks to mitigate some of this um, theft, right? When it comes to mobile money, um, think about like cash app of Venmo. Um, Somebody oh, send me this money, and then you send it to them, but that money is instant. So I, it literally within minutes of them receiving that money, they can cash this money. Yeah, right. They can go to somewhere, get it to cash, or they can wire it to another account. In this case, right, in 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 the in the, in the instance of cash app and Venmo. Well, for us, we know that that well the opportunity of solving this problem in this way does create other problems, which is somebody can. And then once you, once somebody have access to this cash money that's instant, there is no way to ever get him back. Mm-hmm. So whoever is supporting, securing, or insuring this money, it is 100% a guarantee loss, right? So not a case that happened with traditional banking. So something that we're looking into is like, what happened if we allow users to support something like an emergency PIN? where users have this dual-sided password to log in, and it's easy. The pin to log into your account is just a four-digit pin. Um, But what if you had two of them? And Mm. what if people couldn't distinguish between the two? And what if when you log in with this emergency pin, what if we can actually show an alternative balance in your account that is not even appealing to anybody who's trying to rob Uh. you? <laughs> so it, oh, it starts from the like logging in. I'm I'm laughing just because it's just so it's so interesting. It's so it's it's such a great idea. Great, and you don't you think about like, this. What I have I have ten cents in here. Right, right. Like, you know you want you got your confidence level. You log in with your e pin, and yeah. while you had a hundred bucks in your account, right. logging in with your emergency pin makes it just 
five bucks. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then, oh, you don't have money. But but let's say that the user does in fact decide to say, hey, you know, send me those five bucks anyways. Um, then you just lose that. five bucks instead of your hundred. Exactly. So we drastically reduce. What is this genius? <laughs> we drastically reduce the liability. But more importantly, every flag and operation involved is instantly flagged. So rather than waiting for the user to mitigate this case later and, and, and get out of like, imagine you just got robbed at gunpoint. Like imagine needing to like keep now bring yeah. your exposure back together enough to somehow call support and say somebody just robbed me of five bucks. Like probably calling technical support for digital app might not be the first thing you want to do when you just got robbed at gunpoint. Right. And so we're also drastically reducing the mitigation process because now every transaction that happens under this e-pin or emergency pin is immediately red flagged and now we're tracing the money live and now that person now needs to find a way to cash this five bucks that he just got and this person will be presented with quite a lot of friction because we're now literally mitigating this case actively so with this tech that we're trying to build we're one making the potential of the rob or the instance of being robbed for it to happen, right? By, by making your balance far less appealing. Um, but the, in the case that it does in fact happen, um, pretty much what we're saying is that we're giving the user the opportunity to allow us to, to, to alert us that this is currently happening and we can mitigate that process instantly or almost instantly. And um, we can also ensure that anybody involved or affected uh, into the process of making this happen can create, can introduce friction into the experience to make sure that that money is never lost, even if it's wired right after. Yeah. So like, um, in order for you to deposit and withdraw your money from, from our, from our wallet, you kind of need these intermediate agents, right? Um, which are like walking ATM. Well, it's like businesses that we have converted into ATMs, right? Um, okay. and, um, they, uh, you know, this user will have to go to one, any one business and say, hey, I want to cash out this money. Um, but then those businesses can help support that money and it never leaves that account, right? And so these are some of the things that we're looking into, right? That we don't see anybody else in the market paying attention to, but that's because uh, people who are trying to solve this problem, especially in places like Dominican Republic, which are the same banks trying to convert themselves into this new wave of tech, their best interest is not to save people money, right? And you said so, their best interest is not to save people's money? Of course not, right? They're a bank. They're, they're, their interest is to make money out of people, out of people, right? And so as a bank, your, your business model is heavily dependent on taking people's money and making interest out of people's money, right? Mm. And so you will never get around solving this issue because one, institutionalized or institutionally speaking, the people behind these banks are the wealthy class, right? And they be behind, they have been behind this bank for a very long time. And so they will never get the opportunity to solve this problem because they never seen themselves in it. And yeah. that is the importance of representation. Um, and two, they have built an entire institution, financial institution behind profiting out of people's money in a way that puts people at a deficit, right? So think about the overwhelming problem we have in America with debt, right? And, and, and people drowning in debt, right? And so this, you know, in places like Dominican Republic, banks can afford for people to default on those because they won't make money out of it, right? They don't have the debt collection agency to, to profit from, right? They don't have yeah. the other mitigation systems. And so, the regulations are far more strict that people won't even get the opportunity to default to this debt because they're never given the opportunity to take on loans or credit. And so until these banks break away from being banks and think about being human, they will never get the opportunity to solve these problems that affect the majority of the population in the country. And so that's where the opportunity lies to us. And I think one of the favorite quotes that I came across recently from the CEO of Loop 
is that your bias is our opportunity. And I love that because that's kind of where we thrive. Um, I, I have another question. This is my second to last question. Mm-hmm. If we if we were able to provide access to everyone, everyone in the world with to banking, what would be some of the issues that still remain? Um, I know we were talking about equity and inclusion and things like that. What would be some of these other like big issues? I think the decentralized issue is still an issue, like the, the intent buying crypto, which is how do we move money across borders freely? Right. And I think that's kind of like where the the appealing factor of crypto comes into place, which is like we know that we have now become a much, much larger global economy. We know that the internet yeah. is privileged to connect with people across border freely. Um, and so if we bank everybody, it kind of facilitates um this you know digital transaction space. However, I think we are still gated on the being able to move money between borders. And I think that's important because remittance is, again, remittance is actually one of the biggest sources of income for things like Latin America, right? We have the regular migration process where you have like people and family who migrate to the United States of America. Right. Um, they find some employment, they make some money, and then a lot of the majority of their income is actually to be able to send it back to their loved ones in their home country. Right, right. And so uh, here's kind of where Western Union comes in, right? Um, and uh, what Western Union comes in is like your loved ones send that money, then uh, the, 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 the people in their home country now need to find a way to find a Western Union office, navigate to that Western Union office, and hopefully not get robbed when you walked out of it, because it's quite a lot of people outside of it, just watching people yeah. walk out cash money. Um, and so that is something we're actually looking into, which is like, how do we ensure that if we do create this infrastructure for these individuals, that they're able to also receive money from the loved ones across borders effortlessly? Okay, right? yeah. Um, and so we're trying to look into the unit economics behind that and how to be able to have access to instant transfer of money across border. And there are some people already like where Remington's is working towards solving those problems and they're partnering with local tech companies to support that. Um, like if you want to send money to someone in Africa, you can, and you send it through War Remit, I think, and then they'll make it available to those individuals via M-Pesa or yeah. Wave, right? Um, right now, the only way that they're making these funds available to people in the Dominican Republic is through banking, traditional banking. And so we hope and aspire to be the first platform that partners with them to be able to facilitate some of that transactions um, for people like that. Um, but I think that the big issue still lies is, is this kind of like sending money between borders because we know that Dominican Republic main source of income, one is tourism. Mm. And second to that, again, is being able to receive money from your loved ones abroad. Yeah. And so I think that that would still be an issue because at the end of the day, I mean, it's like energy cannot be created nor destroyed, right? And so what we're really doing is just trading resources, right? The, the resources of the world are limited unless you're in America and you can just keep pumping cash into the system. Yeah. Uh, but we know how that debilitates the economy. But ideally, assuming that resources are finite, we need to be able to shift those and move those around between borders effortlessly. And unless efforts are put in place to facilitate that, we still kind of have that problem to solve. Yeah. What's something that makes you hopeful? Tech. Okay. The internet, uh, the internet <laughs> I think, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of Gen Z, you know, that makes me hopeful. I think uh, we, we're now... We know how empowering the internet is. We know that the internet is free, and we know how and, and, and how hard we have been fighting uh, to keep that free, even in America, right? Yeah. Uh, where we have tried to regulate it in the past. Um, we know that the internet is indestructible, and, and we know that that's it is because that was the intention. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but the internet was actually built by the military, and right, the yeah. by the internet was like. How can we create a communication system that can withstand the end of the world, pretty much, 
right? Like like a nuclear war or something. And so then the, and then, then the military invented the internet to literally be something that will survive a war. And so we know that the fundamental aspect of the internet was intended to be indestructible. And so um, we know that that could be used as a tool to, to break barriers and, and, and ultimately borders. But the majority of us had to learn the internet, right? We already were used to a certain lifestyle and then the internet came into our lives later in our adulthood, right? Like for me, I didn't really start using the internet until I was a teenager. And I didn't get my first computer until I was like 13, right? Um, or, Or 11. But we have this new generation, Gen Z, who was born in the era of the internet. Yeah, they're they're like little kids on iPads, babies. And so when you have an entire human generation to only have known this, the possibilities are endless. And so what they're going to intend to do is to, you know, and I remember reading this book, Call hooked. Um, oh. It's one of the biggest book used in tech to create tech, and is used across all the big tech companies. And the book starts with, you know, you will be successful in building a product once you realize that the internet is as essential as air. Wow! And if you build a product around the internet being this fundamental human right that people need as much access to as they need air, then you will realize that users will start adopting this technology and it will diffuse into human behavior in a way that it would free us from our own institutional shackles that we get by corrupted politicians. Yeah. Because they can control this, this very same tool that they build to free their communication is actually freeing humanity from a lot of the political system. And that is based on, on, a, on, a, on a paradox um, that, uh, that says um, that technology advances faster than political systems. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we can believe that we could easily see that we see there there was like this hearing a few years ago in the senate and they had like mark zuckerberg there like there's like these you know some of these senators are you know pretty up there in age and they were asking questions like how do i accept a friend request and you're just like what and yeah. now you're tasked with writing the regulations of this, and we're asking about friend requests on Facebook. Uh, he was, he looked so bad every time he was. I remember seeing that yeah. and, and the whole thing. He looked just so bad for like you know these guys. These people know absolutely nothing about what we're building, and yet yeah. regulate us, right? Yeah. yeah. Honestly, I think that's what makes me hopeful. It makes me hopeful that we have a generation that was born into this era, and their possibilities and what they can create with this thing called the internet is endless. Um, and so what you now have places, people like Apple and Google uh, making these very low budget devices, right? To enter these markets, um, to make sure that everybody is have access to technology. And so then you have the Elon Musk of the world making Starlink accessible to everybody across the globe. And one of the things that I love about Google is their MBU team, right? Uh, it's called the next billion user. And what Google's research has shown is that there's a billion people right now getting access to the internet for the first time. The question is... That's nuts. (laughs) And the question behind that is that how do we, Mm. tech makers, Mm. enable technology for them to leverage that internet? Mm. And is that technology inclusive? Yeah. And not discriminatory? Wow. To the next billion. <laughs> to the next billion, to the next MBUs. Yeah, to the next MBUs. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I suppose we can continue on all day. Um, I, first of all, want to thank you for taking time to chat with us today. Um, I, I remember when we were kind of like talking about how we're going to do this episode. 
uh, we had like a quick call last week and I was blown away by like the depth of this topic. Um, people don't really dig into it and especially not to the depth that we were able to do today. Um, so thank you for bringing your expertise. I, I super, super appreciate it. Thank you for, for having me, having us and giving us a platform, um, allowing us as a community a platform to highlight uh, and bring to light some of this fundamental human rights issue that are existing around the globe. I think that, um, you know, what we can create opportunities and, and, and platforms and mediums, you know, from the cover of our own home, we often forget that there's a marginalized community out there that has been historically excluded and very much intentionally excluded. Um, and that it takes for people like you and I who happen to 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 break through the crack and, and, and gain some of that uh, privilege for us to exercise in that privilege and make sure that we continue to spread awareness, but also continue to do. I'm a firm believer that between doing and not doing um, is always better to always do. I love that. Yeah, that's a that's a great note to end on. Always do. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Before I end the episode, I want to acknowledge the recent horrible deaths at Club Q in Colorado and the Walmart in Virginia. My heart aches and how incredibly sad how often this is happening. May their memories be a blessing. I hope you all had a happy and safe Thanksgiving with lots of good food. And until next time, I'm Jalen and this is The Dove.